Good morning. Isn't that a beautiful song about your young folks? God is good. He is good. I want to thank you for the privilege of being with you this week. It's been a joy for Ruth and I to see some of the beautiful things in Licking County and to fellowship with some of, the, some of God's choice saints right here in this church. Just been a great blessing. We've been treated royally. Uh, Tony and Sonia have taken us out and and showed us around, and uh, others, Donna, and just we've just been treated magnificently. Couldn't be any better. And uh, thank you for all your kindness, all the kind comments, and uh, and the response to the preaching. Thank you. Thank you, and our prayers are with you. I know you're in transition, and, uh, but don't despair. God has a plan. God has a path. Very, very difficult to, for a man who's been here 37 years. That's a long time. Do you know that today only one in five preachers retire still in the ministry? They just, they don't, they, they bail out. And uh, to stay in it 37 years... And 79, that's almost miraculous anymore. And uh, he's done a wonderful job, and now you're on the search for a... Don't be surprised if it takes you a little while. Uh, they're not growing preachers on every corner. Sadly, uh, the affiliation that I'm with, we're searching for preachers. Everybody is. But God has someone. God hasn't forgot about you. He's got someone for you, and uh, that's going to work its own path and pattern out, and Ruth and I are praying for you, and I'm going to be snooping around the country, looking under every bushel basket I can find to see if there's one there. This morning, I, for this, for my, what is my, my closing to the, this part of the revival, I just want to share with you a, a simple gospel message. Give an invitation. It may be that someone here is not a Christian. Or someone here is a cold Christian or a drifting Christian or used to be a Christian. No longer. I don't know. But uh, somewhere in a meeting like this, we need the gospel. And I want to share that with you this morning. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Every time I preach from one of the books in the, in the Bible, I'll say, well, this, I believe this is my favorite book. But Romans must be my favorite book. There's no clearer statement of the gospel than in the book of Romans. It just rises to the heights of the Himalayas, but with the grace of God. And in the opening chapters lay the groundwork, the foundation for the doctrine of justification by faith. That's how we're saved. We are saved by grace through faith, period. It's not performance-driven. It's not what you do or don't do. It's His grace through faith that saves us. Amen. Now, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. You can't earn it. But God certainly wants us to diligently apply ourselves to growth and to being built up in the faith. This morning, I want to go to chapter 5. 
And this is Paul. He makes a little bit of a sort of summing up the, the, those first four chapters and that connecting word, therefore. If you'd stand as we're going to read just uh, two or three verses. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Amen. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. And perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given unto us. Let's bow our heads for just a moment of prayer. Justin, would you pray for me this morning? seated. One of my favorite preachers is the late E.V. Hill. Some of you may have heard of him preach. But E.V. Hill was preaching one Sunday morning in Kansas City, Missouri to a large congregation. And God was helping E.V. Hill preach. He was preaching on heaven. And he got so caught up in his own preaching, he just couldn't hardly find a place to stop. And he'd preached 40 minutes and 50 minutes and he went right on past an hour. He just couldn't bring that beautiful piece of homiletics to a, a, a safe landing. But finally, about an hour and 20 minutes, he brought it to a close, and the, and the congregation was blessed, and men and women were saying amen and praise the Lord. It was just a wonderful service. And he was feeling real good, and he made his way to the back of the church, as preachers sometimes do, and he was standing there with his Bible under his arm, and and greeting the brothers and sisters as they walked out the door. He said the brothers were slapping him on the back and saying, you're a real man of God. That was a great sermon. He said the sisters were just looking at me sort of starry-eyed. He said some even reached up and kissed me on the cheek. Oh, great sermon, Dr. Hill. And he said, man, was I feeling good. He said when all of a sudden a young professional woman looked to be about 23 years old. She was standing in line. I just assumed she was going to add some more adulation, and I was ready. And when she stepped up, I reached out my hand to this beautiful young lady to shake hers. Said she stood there like a statue. I thought she was going to spit on my hand. She burned her eyes into me. She looked at me with as much disdain as you could imagine anybody looking at anybody with. He said, 
I finally sheepishly just dropped my hand and stood there. I didn't know what to do. And he said, all of a sudden, that she took her right arm and her right index finger and shot that thing toward me about six inches off the end of my nose. And she said, you, you, you ought to be ashamed of yourself sprinkling stardust in the eyes of those poor old ignorant men and women in there talking about pie in the sky and life everlasting and heaven and all of that other nonsense. You know it's not true. Shame on you. He said, I didn't know what to say. Nobody ever talked to me like that. He said, I just stood there dumbfounded. He said, I was hoping she's going to move on. He said, but she didn't. That she stood her ground and she drew back that hand again like a rattlesnake ready to strike. And that finger came at me one more time. And here's what she said. She said, furthermore, what would I have if I had your Jesus Christ? He said, oh, now, finally something I answer. I will be happy to tell you what you would have if you had my Jesus Christ. Isn't that an amazing question? I wished everybody in the whole wide world would come up to me and ask me that question because I'd love to answer it. I'm glad that somebody in here posed that question this morning, even if it was myself, because I want to answer that question. What would you have if you had Jesus Christ? Now, those of you that are Christians, I'm assuming you know that, but you probably need to be reminded. But it may be somebody here this morning or even watching online that's a bit skeptical. They're not sure about all of this Jesus stuff. And, and they may need a good, solid answer. And Paul gives that. Paul makes it very, very clear that as we come to Christ naked and empty and filthy in our sin, the only hope we have is putting our faith in His atoning work at Calvary. And as we place our complete and total trust in Him, we experience what the Bible calls being justified by faith, being declared righteous and in a right relationship with Him. But what's the fallout effect of that? What do we have that flows out of that? And Paul gives it right here in this passage. It just literally breaks open into four simple things. The first thing that we have, Paul says, we have peace with God. The second thing he said we have, we have the power of grace. The third is the person of the Holy Spirit. And the fourth is the promise of glory in eternity. Now, who in the world wouldn't want that? Well, let's talk about it. Paul, first of all, says, if you have Jesus Christ, you have peace with God. How many remember what it was like when you were lost in sin and the struggle in your own heart? The desire to have peace, the desire to have a sense of reconciliation in your life. That troubling, nibbling conscience that hounded you and dealt with you and spoke to you. That incessant pursuit of that which is empty and vain. G.K. Chesterton, the great Catholic theologian, said it like this. He said, when that man leaves the beautiful suburban hills of the large city and makes his way down into the dark bowels of that city, 
and makes his way to the red light district looking for a woman. He's not really looking for a woman. He's really looking for God. What's Chesterton saying? He's saying there is a God-shaped vacuum in our heart. And if you don't have God filling that, you're constantly seeking, constantly hungering, constantly longing for something to satisfy that deep, deep longing in your heart that only God can fill. And Paul said, if you have Jesus Christ, that's what you have. You have peace with God. My last year of Bible college in Cincinnati, Ruth and I got married our last year. We needed a place to live and a job, moving out of the dorms. And I found a job. I must, some of you, you probably know a little about Cincinnati. I don't know. But, but Cincinnati has a section of town around it called Indian Hills. Indian Hills is the, that's where the Carl Linders and the, the wealth, some of the wealthiest people in the state of Ohio in Cincinnati particularly live out in Indian Hills. And there was the Emory family. They owned the largest buildings in town. They, were, they, they literally descended from royal blue blood. They were unbelievably wealthy. And they had an 89-room mansion on a 1,200-acre estate in Indian Hills. And Ruth and I got a job there. So, Nathan, the first home I took my wife to was an 89-room mansion on a 1,200-acre estate. Anybody top that? Been downhill ever since, but we started up there. <laughs> and we worked for the Emory's. I took care of the grounds and everything, and Ruth did a little bit in the house, not much, but that's, that's where we lived for a while. The old two, the Emory's, the patriarch matriarch, had passed away. And the daughter, Leela, Leela Emory Steele, was still alive. She has since passed away. And so she was sort of our supervisor. She'd come over and check on us, and, and she gave me the orders and things to do. They had beautiful fountains and gardens, and I trimmed hedges, and I did everything outside, took care of the place. She'd come over and chat a while, and we'd trim hedges together. She loved to be in the garden and work in the dirt with her fingers, ride her horses. They had a fox hunt. They just, money everywhere. She grew up with private tutors. Her grandfather was Charles Dana Gibson the great artist who owned an island in Maine, and they summered on the island, and all the oil paintings in the house were from Charles Dana Gibson. She had everything money could buy. They yachted on the Mediterranean. They had it all. And so I was coming down our first year of working there. I was graduating from God's Bible School in college. And so, like every senior, some of you have done the same thing, you'll send out an invitation you don't care whether they really come or not, but you are hoping they'll give you a gift, right? So I sent them an invitation. And lo and behold, she said to me, she said, uh, John and I are going to come to your graduation. Now, I'm sure she'd been to graduations at the University of Cincinnati and Xavier and all those places. She'd just never been to a commencement at God's Bible School in college. It was very, very different. And the place was packed. The auditorium had over 1,000 people there. All the graduates are on the platform. This is back in 1979. And uh, I mean, back then, graduations were really just like a, they were tacked on to camp meeting, and they were just like a, a uh, religious service. I mean, you had your, your commencement speaker just went after it in, in, in a sermon. You had music and the choir and the orchestra and the uh, quartets would sing. 
very religious. And the Steels came that night, came late, and they could hardly find a seat. There's four sections of seats like there are here, and they found a section right over in here. They squeezed in. Service went on. The quartet, back in, the day, back in that day, Justin, there was a popular song, The Cross is My Statue of Liberty. It was there, and my soul was set free. Remember that? That was popular in the 70s. And they got to singing that song. Cross is my statue of liberty. It was there my soul was set free. And that crowd began to warm up to that song. And I heard somebody say, Amen. Praise the Lord. They sang it again. And right on the same seat with the steels, there was a 16-year-old girl who wanted to visit camp meeting. She had just been wonderfully converted out of West Virginia, the hills of West Virginia. She had been involved in all sorts of drugs and, and sordid affairs and sex to pay for drugs and alcohol and when there wasn't drugs. She, her life at 16 was an absolute wreck. But she had found the gospel, heard the gospel. And, and the miracle of a moment, God absolutely set her free broke those chains of bondage to drugs and all that she was in. I mean, that little girl was set free. So she wanted to come to the Hilltop Camp meeting, and she did. And when they started singing that song, it was like a kettle on a hot eye boiling in her heart. And I was on the platform. I watched, the, I watched this all play out. I saw her standing there. I'd heard about her being on campus. And all of a sudden, she just stood straight up. And in her little squeaky 16-year-old voice, she said, Praise the Lord! I looked at the steels. They slowly turned their eyes. They didn't go to church. If they ever went to church, it, was, it might have been Anglican. I don't know. They, they were not religious people at all. They looked over there. What in the world's happening in here? And I thought, dear Lord, please calm this place down. They're going to think we're a bunch of wild fanatics howling at the moon. They won't know what's going on. Well, he didn't hear that prayer because the quartet <laughs> sang it again. And I mean that place just erupted. And when that place erupted with shouts and praises, that little girl jumped out of her seat and started running around this section of pews. I thought, oh, no. I looked at the steels, and there they sat, petrified. They'd pick her up on radar when she got over here, and then they'd watch her, and they'd look like it, they were horrified. I, I felt for them. I know they didn't know what was going on. Finally, it calmed down. Finally, we graduated. Finally, we got out of there. They met me at the back. And perfect, perfect lady and gentleman. Oh, Mike, such a wonderful service, beautiful, so proud. of. They said everything you ought to say. That's Friday night. Monday morning, I was out trimming hedges. I looked up that long, long lane that leads in past the gatehouse down to the gardens, and here comes a blue BMW, Mrs. Steele. She jumps out where I was trimming hedges, and she's dressed to trim hedges, and she's got her clippers, and she buzzes over, and she vigorously attacks those yew bushes, and then all of a sudden, she stops. And she turns to me. She said, Mike, can I ask you a question? I said, sure. She said, uh, now, at your commencement service on Friday night, I thought, uh-oh. She said, why was that young lady screaming? 
Now, how in the world do you answer a question like that? I said, Mrs. Steele, this, this could take some time. She said, I got all the time you need. And I went back into my own life. I said, you didn't know me, Mrs. Steele, until I met you here. But I was a wayward boy. I was a leftover from the hippie generation, far from God. But on March the 17th, 1974, God amazingly, remarkably changed my life. And I went through all of that, and I ended up, and I said, Mrs. Steele, because of God's forgiveness and his grace, there is no condemnation whatsoever in my heart, and I have peace with God. I went through the story of that little girl, and I said, that's exactly what she was experiencing. She's very young. She just could not contain herself, and she had to let it out. This is still was taking every bit of that in. By this time, those arms are hanging limp. Her head's dropped. Tears are coming out of her eyes. She looks over at me, and she said, you know, Mike, it's exactly what I need. It's exactly what I don't have. Peace with God. Ladies and gentlemen, if you have Jesus Christ, you have peace with God. But that's not all. That'd be wonderful if that was it, but it isn't. Paul said we have the power of grace working in our hearts. Often, sometimes we mistakenly in our terminology, use the word grace simply defining it as unmerited favor. And of course it is. Something for nothing. Something you don't deserve. He's given us grace. But that's, grace is a two-sided coin. That's only one side of the definition. The other side of the biblical definition is grace is that enabling power given to us through the Holy Spirit that helps us do what God wants us to do. It's grace. And so Paul says we have grace not only unmerited favor, and that's where he uses that, he said, this grace wherein we stand. It's literally, the Greek is saying there, we've been moved from a very shaky situation, now we're on solid ground and we stand in grace. Politicians fall in and out of favor, but not us. We stand in grace, in his favor, we stand in it. But it's not only that, it's the ability for you and I to do what God wants us to do. There is grace, enabling power. A friend of mine, attorney David Gibbs, some of you may have heard him. He's the head of the Christian Law Association. I don't know if you've heard him or not. But he was speaking at a commencement, but it was a high school, Christian school commencement. They invited him to speak, and he was there, and... He said there were 17 graduates lined up in a foyer just like this with a glass wall. He said, I could see them through the glass. He said, just happy, beautiful. He said, there was one girl three or four positions back, long blonde hair, just glowing, this massive smile on her face. Just, she just glowed. And he said, it was so noticeable, I, I, I couldn't help but look. And then all of a sudden, the graduates started marching in. He said, I noticed they came in, they had two rosebuds. I noticed she only had one. But they started down the aisle. And about halfway down, I was able to get a real good look at her. And when I got a good look, he said, I noticed it looked like somebody took her face apart. Starting right here, there was a scar 
ran across her chin, her lips, her nose, right up through her left eye, right up into the corner of her hairline. Looks like they took her face apart and didn't get it quite back just right. He said, but despite that, just glow. She glowed. The pastor saw me looking. He nudged me and he said, David, let me tell you a story while they're coming in. He said, she grew up in a home where a couple fought and said, as a little girl, three or four years old, she said she, could, she couldn't stand hearing her mom and daddy fought, and they fought all the time. He said, one Saturday morning, she woke up, and they were fighting in the kitchen, arguing, yelling at each other. He said, she jumped out of bed, ran down the hall. They, they, they never heard her coming. They were yelling at each other. They didn't hear it. She ran into the kitchen. She was going to run between them to stop the fighting. The father her father, the husband, gotten very angry that morning, out of control. He reached over and took a knife off the counter. And he was going to stab his wife. And he brought that knife up just like this. And when he did, that little girl ran right between them. Caught her right here, ripped her face right open. She almost bled to death. They get her put back together. They send him to prison for 14 years. She goes through life with this horrible scar. Can you imagine? You, you moms, can you imagine? At the checkout counter, the lady at the grocery store, what happened to her? As if she didn't have ears. Kids at school, why oh, you got that streak on your face? Can you imagine? But despite all of that, that mother had so invested in that daughter, the Christian faith and her identity in Christ and who she was in Christ, she could glow despite all of that. Amen. And she was glowing that morning. But the pastor also said, there's something very, very interesting, David, that he gets out of prison this week. And word was in the community he was going to come to his daughter's graduation. I hadn't seen her in all these years. He wanted to come see her graduate. And she told me before the service, she said, if my dad shows up, don't let him surprise me. Make sure I know it. He said, after the graduates were all seated, he said, David said, we saw a man, a very pale-skinned man, looked like he hadn't seen sunshine in a long time, come through the back door, sit down on the back seat. The pastor said, that's her dad. He got up while the music was still playing, walked down, whispered in this girl's ear. Dr. Gibbs said, I could see her just turns white. He said, but that, in, just in an instant, she reached up and grabbed the pastor by the lapel, pulled him back down, whispered in his ear. He said he went out a side door, came back, and he had another rosebud and handed it to her. They went through the graduation. Everything was fine. And the flowers were to give mom and dads on the way out. And the kids marched out. They'd, they'd take a rose, give it to dad, take a rose, give it to mom. And with her turn, she took a rose. She stopped and gave it to her mom. And they embraced and they wept and loved one another. And then she squared her shoulders and walked to that last pew. She turned and looked down that pew. And now her dad, scared to death, what is she going to do? She walked right up to him. She stuck that rose out. She said, Daddy, take this. I just want you to know that I've forgiven you and that God wants to forgive you too. Then she turns and walks out. 
You say, Brother Avery, you don't know what they've done to me. You don't know what has happened to me in the wee hours of the night by a drunken father or stepfather or a, a brother or a cousin or an uncle. You don't know the torment I've been through. You don't know the person I've been married to. You don't know what they did to me or the church did to me. No, I don't know. And there's no way in the world for me to know. But I know this. I know that five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Don't let that ransomed sinner die. And the same grace that flowed into Jesus at Calvary can flow right into your heart, into my heart. And God can enable us to loose them and let them go. It doesn't mean you forget anything. It doesn't mean they become your best buddy. It doesn't mean you play checkers on Friday nights with them. But I want to tell you what it does mean. It means you can be set free on the inside by the forgiving grace of God. There is grace. Doesn't stop there. We also have the person of the Holy Spirit. It's very interesting how it's phrased there in verse 5. He said, and, and we have the Holy Spirit who is shed abroad love in our heart. And it's not love for God that he's shed abroad in our heart. It's the love of God being shed in our hearts. He is assuring our hearts before God of God's deep, eternal, steadfast love for you and I. There's nothing more that pleases the heart of God than to assure our hearts that we are indeed his child. You and I have that. Romans calls it the witness of his spirit. Father and his son were walking down a street in England. They were, the father was holding that boy's hand and they were just chatting up a storm, having the time of their life on a Saturday morning. When all of a sudden, that father stopped, turned around, picked up that little man and just put his arms around him and hugged him tight and he said, son, daddy loves you more than I can say and set him down. That little boy's face just glowed. He was his little boy while they were walking down the street. But when he picked him up and gave him an embrace, that's what the Bible calls that assurance of God's love in our hearts. We have that Holy Spirit. But the last thing, we have the promise of glory. That's how Paul phrases it. He uses the word hope. In our language, hope means guess so, hope so, maybe so, but in the Greek, the word hope means dead certainty. There's no guessing to it. Paul said, you and I have the dead certainty of glory that will follow. Ladies and gentlemen, there's one thing that I am 100% certain about everybody in this building, and that is you're going to die. I'm going to die, you're going to die. You're not going to get out of this one alive. You're going to die. Now, that being the fact, my assumption would be you'd like to be prepared for that moment. And you can be only through the work of Jesus on the cross. You can be prepared for that. And a part of what it means to be justified by faith is we have the promise of glory. Anybody remember a man by the name of James Dobson? 
Remember when Dobson, on his early days, focused on the family? Actually, before he, he started that program, he worked at the University of Southern California Hospital. He was a psychiatrist uh, in the hospital. Part of his job was to make rounds and visit families and work with patients that could be in emotionally troubled circumstances. In one of his, his assignments, he had a week on, a, on the, the floor where little children were terminally ill with cancer. They were all dying. They were all going to die. And Dobson said, I, I worked that week on that floor, and I would go from room to room. I'd talk to parents and, and sometimes just mothers, and I would pray with them. He said, I was given that assignment, and second door on the left, he said, I noticed something very unusual. He said, there was a, a woman in there. It didn't take long to, that she was not a well-educated woman, but didn't take long also to find out she was a godly woman. And he said, I introduced myself, and <coughs> I met her little boy. said he was seven years old, but he couldn't have been much longer than that. He was nothing but a ruckle of bones, bluish, eyes sunken. He was dying from a very, very painful form of bone cancer. And he said, I was trying to encourage him, but I noticed that mother, she had her heart set on the things above. She would sing to him Christian songs and spiritual songs and said she was, she was an upbeat woman with great hope. And he said, I'd drop in every day. I just enjoyed, I enjoyed being with her and being with that little boy and I would pray with him. Finally, toward the end of the week, the doctor came around and that mother was there. She had lifted that little boy up and she had him up on her chest and she was rocking him in a little rocking chair they had. And as they rocked, she was singing to him, Amazing Grace, just humming it. And the doctor walked in. And a very kind of a cold, blunt doctor. He just walked in and introduced himself and said, Yes, yes sir, I know who you are. She said, Well, I, I'm here to tell you, you know, you know your son's dying. Yes, doctor, we know. She said, well, we don't, think he's got, we don't think he's got 24 hours left, so you need to brace yourself. She said, thank you, doctor. He slips out. She begins to hum again. Warm tears begin to run down her cheeks, but she's humming and singing. When all of a sudden she feels something quivering on her shoulder, and it's her, her boy. He's trying to say something to her. He's weak. She thought he was under sedation, but he wasn't. He heard everything the doctor said. And he raised his little head and trembling lips, he said to his mom, he said, Mama, doctor said I'm going to die. Is that true? She said, yes, son, it's true. He said, Mama, I, I, I don't want to die. I don't know what that is. I don't, I, I'm scared to die. She said, oh, son, you don't have a thing in the world to worry about. She said, why, son, death for you? It's going to be nothing but going to sleep, and you're going to wake up in the presence of Jesus. He said, mama, how do I know? How do I know that's what's going to happen? How do, that, how do I know that's where I'm going to go? She said, I'll tell you how you I'll tell you how you're going to know. He said, Jesus is going to ring the bells of heaven for you. Now, 
I can't prove from the Bible that Jesus rings bells for little boys, but you can't disprove it, so we're just even on that one. But that's what she told me. That seemed to comfort him. He went back to sleep. They didn't allow the parents to stay all night, and so she put her little boy to sleep in the bed, kissed him and said, I'll be back early in the morning. She slipped out, and she was back bright and early before the sun was up the next day. She stopped at the nurse's station, and the nurse, she said, how did my son do last night? She said, well, not good, said uh, he was incoherent all night long. And the woman didn't quite understand that word. She said, incoherent, what's that mean? She said, well, he was talking out of his head all night long. Oh, well, what was he saying? Strangest thing. All night long, he talked about hearing bells. He's completely incoherent. She said, he wasn't incoherent. She walked into the room, and he was asleep. She picked that little ruckle of bones up, threw him up on her shoulder, and she began to rock. She began to sing, and she began to cry. And as she rocked and sang, she felt that quiver one more time. She glanced out of the left eye and leaned over and couldn't open his eyes, but he could, he could get his, he, he was trying to say something. And finally he said this. He said, Mama, Mama, do you hear him? He's ringing the bells, Mama. And his little head fell and he was gone. Ladies and gentlemen, I'll tell you something. I don't know about the bells, but I know this. That if you have been justified freely by grace through faith, you have peace with God. You have the power of grace. You have the person of the Holy Spirit living in you, which is the earnest of our inheritance. And you have the assurance, promise of eternal life. And when you leave this old world and step over into the next, why some folks are going to be dead and in heaven three or four days before they realize, oh, no, I guess I died. It's just going to be that smooth for the Christian. But here's the question. Are you that person? Do you know Jesus Christ? I want you to stand. I want you to bow your heads. Everyone bow your head, please. The most important question that you'll ever be asked is being asked. The most important business that anyone ever has to attend to, you're being asked to attend to it. Is there anybody here this morning? You'd say, Brother Avery, I'm not a Christian, but I want to be. Or I'm not even sure if I am, but I want to be sure that I am. Wherever you are on that spectrum, is there anybody here this morning that say, I'd like to pray, I'd like to know Jesus Christ before I walk out of this building this morning? Anybody here this morning like that? Anybody? We're not going to pull, we're not going to tarry. 
It's your decision. But if the Holy Spirit is pulling on you and tugging on you and drawing you, I strongly advise you to come down here. Pray that prayer. Give your heart to Jesus. Confess, repent. Confession is simply agreeing with God that I am what he said he am. Repentance is an about face. And let the Holy Spirit change your heart. Anybody this morning? Anybody anywhere? We're waiting on you very quietly, very gently. Just waiting for just a moment. For the most important business in the whole wide world. Every heart clear. All done. Father, we're so grateful this morning for the cross of Christ and the mercy that it extends to every one of us. For the grace that flows from those five bleeding wounds. The grace that has come down through history and is, is here this morning. And the faithful Holy Spirit who's always reaching and drawing and pulling men and women toward you. We're so grateful for that. We're so grateful for what you've done in our own hearts and the lives of so many here this morning. And if there is one who is not ready, who is not a Christian, if that is the case, don't let the sun set today until they come to know you in a saving relationship. And whatever you accomplish and do, We'll give you the praise, the honor, and the glory, for it's in your wonderful name we ask it. Amen.